welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. James Williams this time, and Williams keeps his feet. Touchdown! 38 yards for Williams. That's five rushing touchdowns for the Washington State Cougars. Oh, wow, score. <laughs> Look at this. This is an aspen. You can tell that it's an aspen tree because of the way it is. Wow. Michael Preston. I am in a uh, decidedly better mood this week. Can you tell? Can you tell when I use the intro to burn two teams? Well, one team twice and another team kind of, sort of. I'm in a I'm in a much better mood this week. I don't know about you guys. Welcome to the Coog Center Hour. Uh, my friend uh, Roxy Bernstein, well not my friend Roxy Bernstein, I never talked to the guy, but our thanks to our friends at the Pac-12 Networks for that audio and that intro, and my friend Rodney Pepperbottom following that up. If you haven't looked up Rodney Pepperbottom on YouTube before, spend two minutes wherever you are, not in the car though, don't do this in the car, at your computer, at your desk, at work, whatever, uh, look up Rodney Pepperbottom and make sure you have an extra pair of shorts with you because you may actually pee yourself laughing. The video on YouTube is just that hilarious. I'm, I'm, I, I might be overselling it a little bit, but I, I find it to be very funny. Uh, we are fresh off a pretty darn good <laughs> football game there in Pullman. I, uh, I didn't have a place to stay on Saturday. Luckily, a really good friend of mine uh, lives in Pasco. Uh, so we, uh, another buddy and I, were able to drive over there uh, Saturday morning, drop our stuff off, and then we were able to get into Pullman probably about 3.45 or so. Uh, and we, we drove right back out after the game, which, uh, by the way, if you do that on a regular basis, uh, like our friends, our season ticket holders who sit next to us that live in Dayton. Hi, Jenny. Uh, I have no idea how you do that. I, I, I got, you know, whether you're going to, you know, you're going to Dayton, whether you're going to Walla Walla, whether you're going to Tri-Cities, whether you're going to Spokane, that, that, that drive from, that drive from Pullman to Colfax was enough to make me rip my hair out. And I live in Seattle. And it's just because there's like, once you get past that merge onto 195, there's like no reason for the traffic to be going that slow. I, I don't I don't get it, but it was it was my shortest trip to Pullman, and probably my most satisfying trip to Pullman, because I mean, how could it not be? How could you not come away from that game completely satisfied, and a game that finished fifty one to thirty three, and quite frankly should not have been that close. Jeff said as much in his always very good Monday After article, which you should make appointment reading if you haven't already. It, it should have been 60-20. to 20. We, We've been talking about that on our own, you know, on our Slack chat and whatever else, that it really should not have been as close as it was. And I think, I think for me, that might even be the most encouraging thing. That it, it should not have been an 18-point margin. It should have been... It should have been more than that. And now I can just sit here and I can sip my coffee Kermit style. It should have been 60 to 20 and Oregon should have gotten Molly whooped even harder. But that's none of my business. Ooh, that's good. Uh, 
so I, I, I guess I come away from it most satisfied with that and that, yeah, okay, fine. Two years in a row to beat Oregon for the first time since 2002, 2003 is a wonderful thing. And if you if y'all follow me on Twitter, which you should do if you don't, I've I've amazing analysis there at rm underscore Preston. Uh, it has now been four thousand seven hundred and fifty seven days since Washington beat Oregon, and it's been three since WSU beat them. This is probably the last week I'm going to be able to say that, but sorry, I needed to say it once. I I think for me, what that game represented was that you know we we are now in the same place. We were last year, right? Two and two through four games. And again, I said this last year on the podcast when you go to when they went two and through two and two. It was a weird two and two. This is a weird two and two. You lost to Eastern in the first game. You lost a winnable game against Boise State in Boise. That fr- frankly, looking back on it, they should have won. You beat the crap out of Oregon, and then you beat, to my opinion, given who they have been in the talent level, you beat even more of the crap out of Oregon. Oregon. This is a very odd 2-2 two and two for me. But like Jeff said on Monday, maybe it just takes this team a few games to figure things out. It takes them a few games to figure it out, and it looks like they finally have. It looks like they have gotten it figured out. And I, it just, I am in such a different... It's so funny, we always talk about... You know, don't live and die by sports on this podcast. It's bad to do that. But I I am in such a different mood and different place today compared to three weeks ago. Compared to after you lose to Boise State like that. Compared to after you lose a winnable game against an opponent that has been good in the past, recent past too. It is amazing what a different place I am in. It is amazing how much better you feel after you do that to Oregon. Luke Falk had 300... (laughs) My producers are getting very anxious to hear more about uh, this win. Luke Falk had 375 yards of passing and was an afterthought. I, I don't remember a single pass Luke Falk threw except... For that really exceptional one he threw to Kyle Sweet on third down. He threw that, he dumped that in over the receivers. Sweet was in over him, and he just placed that ball absolutely perfectly. The third down in the second quarter, I think, if I'm remembering right. He just placed it absolutely perfectly. And I'll give Luke Fogg one thing. I said this during the game uh, that what you what we got back a little bit was we got back big balls, Luke. We he he had some stones. He was making the throws he needed to make to make this offense work. He was making the throws he needed to make to make Oregon think about the throws so that Washington State could effectively run it to the tune of 280 yards of rushing rushing and six touchdowns. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I, I, you could never have seen that come. I know Oregon's defense is not very good. Their defensive line is not very good. But 280 yards of rushing and six rushing touchdowns, that's just bonkers. And, and, and again, like Jeff said, it seemed like they were running it more. They still threw the ball 60% of the time. And I think that's what you want out of the rushing game in this offense. You want it to seem like you're running it all the time so that those throws are so effective. Luke had a very good day on Saturday. Hovered right around, I think, 7.6, 7-point yards per attempt. No interceptions. No really bad. I think he made one really kind of not good throw. That was about it. That offense hummed on Saturday. 
it absolutely hummed 51, well, 49 points, I guess, technically, but 51 points worth of humming for that offense. An absolutely exceptional day. And that's to not even say anything about how the defense played. Hercules Madafa played out of his skull, regardless of, you know, including that safety. Secondary played well. Shalom Luwani's playing well at nickelback. Those guys were in the backfield and disrupting things so well. So incredibly well. They had the game plan down to beat Oregon. They knew exactly what they wanted to do to beat the Oregon Ducks. And they went out and they executed it. I think we can say of teams in years past that they had game plans and they went out there and they didn't execute them well. But they had a plan. And they went out and did it. And they smashed Oregon right in the mouth. They looked like they were having fun. They looked like a confident bunch. And I think you finally see a team with the athletes both up front on the offensive line and behind them at running back. You can really and truly effectively run the football well. And you can really and truly make teams worry about it. With Gerard Wicks, with Jamal Morrow, and with Booby, With all of them. You can make teams worry about it. Because you have... At, you, even when they're six in the box, Luke Falk is just... F it. Check into a run. Because we're going to run it straight down their throat. Because we're going to pick up 8, 9, 10 yards. We're going to pick up 35 yards on James Williams' run you heard in the intro. We're going to pick up 14 yards on Jamal Morrow's touchdown run. Gerard Wicks weighs like a thousand pounds, but moves like he's light on his feet, like a like a like a bumblebee. I couldn't think of a better animal. They finally have that complementary rushing attack. They finally have the rushing attack that is effective enough to make you think twice. To make you think twice about just dropping seven or eight into coverage. You can't just do that anymore. You can't just be a team that drops seven or eight guys into coverage against Washington State. Because if you do that, fine. We're just going to smash you in the mouth. You're finally seeing the ability to, when the defense does that, you're going to run the ball effectively now. Because you have five offensive linemen that are gigantic. They know what they're doing. They're athletic. And you have running backs who are going to take advantage of every seam and every hole the defense gives them. You did not have that in years past or when Gerard Wicks and Jamal Morrow were younger. They're now both redshirt juniors. And James Williams is a redshirt freshman. Excuse me, booby. Gotta do all exclamation point when you say his name. That, for me, I guess, would be the biggest change for this offense. It's not necessarily that... Luke Falk is getting better. He probably is. There's always going to be some natural progression. To, you know, you know, there should be. You should always be getting better. It's not necessarily that the wide receivers are so much better. It's that finally there is that legitimate threat of running the football. And if you drop eight back, they're going to hand the ball off. And they're going to gash you for 15 yards. And because the defense knows they can't afford to do that, they're going to rush six or they're going to put seven in the box and then Luke Falk's going to throw the football. And that's when this offense really gets effective. Again, it is amazing how different my mood is from three weeks ago. 
go out there and you dominate Idaho. You do exactly what you should have done to Idaho. Even though in the first half the offense didn't look great, things really got going in the second half. And then you came out after a bye week, after uh, when Mike Leach is legendarily not great coming out of a bye week, just like he is in openers, not great in openers, not great coming out of bye weeks. And you absolutely smacked Oregon around. There is no other way to put that. That 18-point deficit is not what that football game was. I know we don't really subscribe to take plays out of it, but you take Charles Nelson's return out of it, and it's 51-26. Take Royce Freeman's ridiculous... By the way, Royce Freeman's still just ridiculously good. Wow, really good. But you take that big 70-yard run out of it, and they held him to like three and a half yards a touch. Outside of two plays on special teams and defense, that team did exactly what you expected them to do all day. They absolutely dominated that football game. Absolutely dominated it. That is what we have been waiting and expecting to see out of an air raid offense. And I think like Brian said on Sunday, you finally, finally saw it. You finally saw the talent catch up with the scheming and with and with the game plan and it all meshed together in perfect harmony on Saturday. And it could not have been in a better game against Oregon. Now two in a row against the Ducks. And a team that, my goodness, if WSU and UW are like Lions... I mean, WSU kind of is because the, you know, cat. Anyway, WSU just drug the antelope down. UW's going to probably come in this weekend and just, you know, finish the antelope off. I mean, I, I just, Oregon is not very good anymore. And WSU put a punctuation and put an, put an exclamation point on it. That's not to say that this one isn't any more important. It's very wildly satisfying to do that to the Oregon Ducks. After so many years of them doing it to you, it is wildly satisfying. But you pretty much what you did, you know, Colorado kind of did it the week before, but still only beat them by a few points, less than a touchdown. Granted, with a freshman in his first start on an, at an away game, but WSU came in and and I mean that 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 is the end of Oregon for I don't know how long. I I really don't know how. How when they're going to be good again. I don't think anybody at Oregon really knows when they're going to be good again. But that was the pinnacle of what we expect to see out of this offense. What we expect to see from these players. What we expect to see from these coaches. All of that. We got it on Saturday. And I, it was only six hours in town. But it was worth I spent more time in the car driving to and from Pullman than I did in Pullman on Saturday. But it was worth every damn minute in the car. Every single friggin' minute. Every single one. And you go into this week looking at a Stanford team that got the crap beat out of them in Seattle last week by a pretty good UW team. But Stanford is not Stanford anymore either. 
It's it's the Christian McCaffrey showdown there because Kevin Hogan is gone, and boy, oh my, boy howdy, did they not have a quarterback to replace him? Oh baby, both starting cornerbacks likely to not play in the game on Saturday, and I am talking myself into something I really shouldn't talk myself into. <laughs> really, really should not talk myself into this. That is just that is a that is a really Poor decision on my part, what I'm doing right now, talking myself into this. This bad idea. Really bad idea. Jacob Rayburn, Stanford Rivals. We're coming up next. We're going to talk a little bit more about this game coming up and about Stanford's troubles so far this year. Uh, despite their, you know, their top 20 ranking and their winning record, they are having some problems. So we will talk to him coming up next here on the Coop Center app. Back here on the Coog Center Hour podcast, uh, we talked about Oregon. We made fun of Oregon a little bit with our intro. Uh, now we're going to talk about the upcoming opponent for Washington State, the Stanford Cardinal, with Mr. Jacob Rayburn from Stanford Sports. I'm saying the name wrong already, Jacob. Uh, remind me what the website is again for everybody so they can go. Cardinal Sports Report, correct? That is right, Cardinal Sports Report. I told him like two minutes before we started this, I had to look it up so I didn't look like a boob, and I already look like a boob. So that's just, we're in fantastic shape already. Uh, Jacob? Not a problem. uh, Last week against Washington, I think, uh, you know, going into that matchup on a short week after an emotional win, uh, no starting cornerbacks uh, for Stanford or Francis Owusu, and again, uh, not this week either. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, I don't think we would have expected, you know, maybe we expected Washington to win by a little bit. I don't think anybody expected the Cardinal to come out looking that bad and Washington to just completely and utterly dominate them in that game. I know you probably certainly didn't expect that, right? No, that was uh, that was the unexpected part. Uh, a loss wouldn't have been unexpected. I think what happened was is that uh, the accumulation of everything against Stanford on top of the fact that they played so horribly ran right up against the Washington team playing incredibly well in front of a home crowd wanting to make a statement and uh, I think by the way it also served as a pretty darn good reminder that Chris Peterson knows how to do his job Um, (laughs) and there was there was some criticism I think uh, that he wasn't able to miraculously turn around Washington faster but I think this season has reminded everybody that what he did at Boise State was not just because he was at Boise State. Uh, I, I think a lot of it, too, you know, we mentioned that game against UCLA, I, you know, scoring at the last second to take that lead, and then they get uh, that late touchdown off the fumble recovery off of sacking Josh Rosen, too. I, is this just kind of, 
a, a symptom of maybe that this this is just not the Stanford team we're used to seeing in the last few years and that I had always said I'll trust David Shaw until it doesn't turn around is it finally kind of maybe to that point where David Shaw might need a year or two to get some more talent on this football team uh, I think what what's kind of happened is um, it, the offense I think a lot of people expected the offense to take some time but at the same time People expected the Christian McCaffrey effect to carry the load for a while, and uh, forgetting that three offensive linemen needed to be replaced, you had a new starting quarterback. Um, but there's no questioning the fact that pretty much down the line, the offensive numbers aren't what anyone would want to see. Um, and to go into Seattle and have probably the worst line of scrimmage game that Stanford has had, um, at, at the very least during the David Shaw era, uh, only made it worse. Um, and uh, I think as far as the UCLA game goes, um, uh, Harrison Phillips, uh, Stanford defensive lineman, nose tackle, made the point today that um, for what the defense had to go up against, UCLA was the most physically demanding game they've played so far. And to go off a short week and then go up against Washington, he said Washington's offensive line was the best coached one that they had to go up again. Mm-hmm. And I feel this. I feel the same was true of Stanford's offense. Stanford had to go up against the best defensive line they have faced so far this season. I want to start uh, one place, Jacob. I, I think the most critical here, I you know, uh, Kevin Hogan graduates uh, from quarterback. Ryan Burns uh, is taking a majority of the snaps. Keller Christ is getting some as well. But I was expecting them to at least be okay with replacing Kevin Hogan. But it seems like... Uh, replacing his production was a much bigger chore maybe uh, than we would have expected because Ryan Burns and Keller Christ are just not to the level that Kevin Hogan was. And, I, and just looking at their stats, uh, quite frankly, it's it's not even really close. I mean, Ryan Burns isn't even at seven yards per attempt. He's barely completing 63% of his passes, and he's only thrown four touchdowns. Uh, is, is that a big – and they're, they are running the ball a lot more than they're passing it. Is that also having a big effect on the offense this year? I mean, Stanford's, um, Stanford's always going to be run first, and even last year at times almost ran the ball 70% in some games. Um, but the, the drop-off has um, the drop off between Ryan Burns and Kevin Hogan is, is really – it's tough to really fully uh, to kind of quantify that mm-hmm. uh, because – but Burns hasn't really played poorly, and, and Coach David Shaw made the point today that he thought Burns played well, but it's very hard to go to your second or third read when you've already been put on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was that was a pretty startling sight that made it tough to evaluate Burns in what would have been in, and ultimately was the toughest game he has played so far in his young career. Um, and with Stanford, really, um, no matter who the quarterback is, it really all starts with how well the offensive line plays. And uh, I think while there was understandably a lot of focus on replacing Kevin Hogan and his storied career leading Stanford, uh, there probably needed to be even more discussion about replacing three offensive linemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but well, what's, what's interesting to note is that what Ryan Burns accomplished um, at the Rose Bowl is something Kevin Hogan never accomplished. Kevin Hogan never led a touchdown drive and threw a touchdown pass. 
in the final seconds of the game mm-hmm. to put his team ahead. Um, the fact that Burns was able to do that was a huge positive and, uh, and shouldn't subtract. And when Washington, the Washington game shouldn't subtract from the fact that he played well against UCLA and is for the most part being asked to manage the game more than winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian McCaffrey, uh, you know, be it fair or unfair, Jacob, he's not having the season that he did last year. Now, granted, that was a Heisman Trophy running up quality season last year, and I frankly uh-huh. think he should have won the Heisman Trophy. Uh, but not a good game in Seattle. He has gotten over 100 and, uh, almost 130 yards in every game, 126 against Kansas State. He's catching the ball plenty. Is he still getting the ball enough in this offense, you think, and is he still being about as effective as he was last year? Because goodness knows you know, he, he is the guy that's the offensive weapon for Stanford and the guy you're going to want to key on. Is he about the same guy he was last year, despite the numbers not looking quite as good as they were? I think in, in several – I think – he's better in some cases. His mm-hmm. ability to uh, run the ball and make five-yard runs out of situations that should not have been five yards um, is even better than what he accomplished last season. Uh, and David Shaw's made the point. He's having to break three tackles to gain five yards, something mm-hmm. he's capable of doing and has done multiple times already this season. Uh, last year, he didn't have to break three tackles to gain five yards. Mm-hmm. Um I think McCaffrey uh, and Coach David Shaw has, has pointed this out several times. McCaffrey spoiled everybody rotten last season. It was um, an incredible amount of fun to watch him do what he did, mm-hmm. and he put up num- he put up his historical numbers, numbers that should have won him the Heisman. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into this season, the fact that the numbers aren't exactly the same. Um, doesn't necessarily mean he isn't actually having a better season. And I think considering all the change around him, he's having a better season now when you really look at what he's able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the tough thing for Stanford is, is just that uh, he can't do it alone. And, um, and the fact that Bryce Love has not been 100% healthy up to this point is actually one of the biggest storylines the, for the Stanford offense in the first four games. Mm-hmm. Um, and head coach David Shaw and offense coordinator Mike Bloomgren were ecstatic in the offseason about the possibility of getting those two on the field more and more this season. And they just haven't been able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Bryce Love has the same kind of ability to wreck a defensive coordinator's day that Christian McCaffrey does. Uh, and if Bryce Love can be healthy come Saturday, that will significantly help Stanford's offense. Speaking of healthy, Jacob, uh, we talked about this a little bit before we uh, started our interview here. Uh, the injury bug is biting Stanford pretty hard uh, the last uh, last week against Washington. And again today, David Shaw said both starting quarterbacks for Stanford are going to be out probably. Francis Owusu probably won't be playing either. Uh, where else um, is Stanford uh, hurting a little bit, so to speak, or quite literally, where are they hurting? You mentioned Bryce Love having some injury problems. He might be back this week. Uh, but but where else are they really hurting injury-wise? Because I know it's it's been an issue for the last couple of weeks for them. Well, Stanford's one of the few teams where having their starting fullback out is actually pretty significant, and mm-hmm. Daniel Marks will once again miss this game. And then uh, Brandon Fanica, an offensive guard who tends to come in 
uh, when Stanford goes to its ogre package, its extra lineman, he will be missed. Uh, he is questionable, so we're not sure yet there. He's missed the last two games. And then Casey Tucker, who started the season left tackle, played right tackle uh, against Washington, is also questionable. So Stanford is uh, facing more injury questions and missing more players than really at any time during the David Shaw era. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the when Coach Shaw started his press conference by having to reference written out notes of the injury situation. He said, normally I can just do it off the top of my head, but for the first time I have to reference all these names that um, may not play and, and certainly won't play in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's something that really is only an excuse if you lose. Uh, they're not viewing it that way. They, they fully expect to be able to, uh, to play and to their standard with the backup players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Stanford defense so far this year, Jacob. Uh, uh, the first three games playing about where you'd expect them, 13 or 10 points given up in those uh, in those games, but then 44 against Washington. Uh, are, are, is, is that the same uh, defense we saw last year that was so stout, or are, are they a little shaky after that Washington game? I think they're still going to be pretty good uh, on Saturday, but missing those starting cornerbacks against an air raid uh, offense, not something they probably want to be putting up with. Yeah, and then that's that's key, really. And and uh, again, to, to reference Coach David Shaw, he said Mike Leach doesn't care if Richard Sherman is starting at cornerback; he's going to call his offense the way he he wants to call it. But <laughs> the fact remains, you feel a lot better having Quentin Meeks and Elijah Holder out there. I know Luke Falk uh, will be relieved not to see the the young corner who picked them off twice last season. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Quentin Meeks, uh, it's huge. Quentin Meeks and Elijah Holder, in terms of the, their position importance and their talent, maybe uh, two of the ten most important players Stanford has, if not higher up the list. Mm-hmm. As far as the defense performance against Washington, it was so uh, catastrophic in comparison to their first three weeks uh, that it's really hard to evaluate. Uh, when, when everything goes wrong, it's very difficult to evaluate how it happened and whether or not it was just a one-game anomaly, which mm-hmm. happens from time to time. Um, the number one stat, really, from that game that has stood out to me and has been talked about a great deal by Stanford fans uh, was that Stanford's defense recorded zero sacks and had one tackle for a loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're going up against... Washington State and Luke Falk and his ability to get the ball out quickly and adding in the fact that Washington State rushed for six touchdowns against Oregon, you definitely have the attention of Stanford's defense. Um, and the question is is whether or not Stanford's able to go back to the first three weeks' worth of performances or if Washington was the start of showing real problems with the defense's ability to get into the backfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall this year, uh, Jacob, 3-1, uh, and one, uh, into the top 20 now for Stanford. Uh, Washington State at home this week. It's probably going to be nice uh, for Stanford to get home, having a little bit of a longer week uh, to get ready after that Washington game. Uh, do, do you think just coming back, at, coming back to home after two weeks away and two pretty physically 
you know, UCLA and Washington kind of tossed him around a bit after those two weeks. Is it going to be nice for them to come back to the farm and just kind of have a, you know, a week at home, including that extra day to get a little well again? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out that Stanford comes back home with a three-and-run record despite back-to-back road games against what is likely to be the Pac-12 South champion and maybe uh, Washington as a uh, playoff contender. Mm-hmm. And to, to split those is something I think a lot of Stanford fans would have taken going into the season. Uh, so coming back home, I think, is going to be huge. Um, adding the fact that on top of last week being a short week, it was also the start of classes for the Stanford students. And uh, so coming back home and being able to sleep in your own bed and go through your home routine, I think it's going to be huge for these guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's certainly, it certainly beats having to, uh, it certainly beats having to go up to Pullman and reliving what was pretty much a, a, a loss until the final seconds, uh, really against the Cougars last year. Yeah, I know. Don't, don't, yeah, that, that, yeah, I know. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, bad, bad memories. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's fresh. Yeah. yeah. Um, you get, uh, the week after this, the team travels to South Bend, Indiana. If I, and if I know David Shaw decently, uh, he's a well disciplined coach. And so these guys probably aren't going to be looking ahead to Notre Dame, right? I mean, that's something they'll at least keep out of their head for this week. I know Notre Dame is a big rival of Stanford, probably second only to Cal, and they do have to go to Indiana for that. But David Shaw is probably going to do a pretty good job of keeping it in these guys' heads that, look, you cannot look ahead and look past this football team. Oh, no question. I think it um, it requires no imagination on the part of the Stanford players and coaches to see this being a loss to Washington State. Washington State is fully capable of beating the Stanford team uh, because the Cougars are close to being 4-0, really, and and everyone at Stanford is aware of that. And they know that beating Washington State, a very good Washington State team, is the best thing possible to put Washington even further in their rearview mirror and set up the Notre Dame game as a really pivotal matchup. It, mm-hmm. it, becomes, less, it becomes a less important rivalry game up at Notre Dame if they drop the game to Washington State. And I think everyone understands that. If you had to give me a score right now here at the beginning of the week, how do you think this turns out on Saturday night? Boy, that's a tough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I and, know uh, that. Yeah, I know that. I'm having a tough time with it, too. <laughs> I think I think the Washington game kind of uh, shook the, uh, the Nostradamus out of everybody. Um, and... Uh, making predictions as everyone kind of shaky right now but uh, right now I think because of Stanford's uh, history under Shaw of really rebounding well from bad games mm-hmm. um, I, think t- I think 2014 was an example of not really being able to do that but for the most part be- outside of 2014 Shaw has shown that they rally the troops really well mm-hmm. and my, my expectation is is that Stanford's offense finally shakes loose a little bit mm-hmm. and and we'll able to be able to put up uh, about a 38-31 win somewhere mm-hmm. in somewhere in that kind of range of a, of a score and uh, but I think there's very little question that 
that Stanford is going to have to score more than 30 points in this game unless something dramatically changes on the defensive side. Cardinal Sports Reports, Jacob Rayburn. You can go there, stanford.rivals.com. He's got you covered for uh, Stanford football leading up to the WSU game. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Not a problem at all. Back here on the Coog Center Hour, thanks again to Jacob Rayburn for joining us to talk about the Stanford Cardinal. And one of the players we talked about uh, with Jacob was Francis Owusu, who's probably going to miss his second game in a row uh, after being concussed in their game against UCLA. Now, I don't know how many people uh, saw the hit that caused Francis Owusu to become uh, concussed, but it was a... Helmet-to-helmet hit, looked like the UCLA player was leading with the crown of his helmet, hit Owusu in the head, player wasn't ejected, Pac-12 later agreed with the officials, but the NCAA later said, no, you got that wrong. Um, and and this, is, this has really been sticking in my craw for a couple of weeks now, because I saw the hit happen uh, live, and in the... Subsequent replays of the hit on Owusu, it looked... I mean, if you could have a gif of a play in an encyclopedia next to targeting, and you could you could scroll over and click on this gif and get it to play of this exact play, it is textbook targeting. Absolutely, I mean, just straight out of an encyclopedia... For what targeting should be. And what bothers me is not only did the referees get that so just incredibly wrong on the field. That the Pac-12 backed them up on it. This is an audio medium. I can't show you the video of how bad this hit was. On Owusu, but it was clear as day. I don't remember who the defender was for UCLA, but they were headhunting. They were absolutely headhunting Owusu. What a surprise. It comes from a Jim Mora coach team again. But it is the absolute textbook call for targeting. And not only do the Pac 12's officials miss it, the conference has the gall. The gall days later to back their officials up and say, no, nah, that wasn't targeting. When the NCAA then comes out, I believe it was about a week later and said, no, that's that's pretty much targeting. That's pretty much exactly what targeting is. Like almost to a T, that's exactly what it is. I was absolutely beside myself. This isn't even my football team. 
Francis Owusu is not on my football team. I I generally don't care too much about Stanford, not not because I don't like them or, you know, David Shaw's a perfectly fine coach and every Stanford fan I met's a perfectly nice person. I just don't I just don't care about Stanford. I just don't care about them. Not a malice, just I don't care. I do not care about that football team and I was to the point of just I was screaming at my television. Absolutely screaming at it. My wife thought I had finally become mentally unbalanced. It it was such a bad and violent and textbook targeting hit and they couldn't even get that right. There is such a bad perception for officials in the Pac-12. It is a constant joke. It is a constant... Every every weekend on Twitter, it is a constant joke. Articles written about how bad these officials are. It is a near constant joke. How bad they are. And I think WSU and Oregon actually had the best... They had Lane Clark's crew. I actually think he's the best official of the bunch last week. But... To, to not only miss that in real time, but then to see the replays over and over and over again and still miss it. This was on ABC. This was on primetime on ABC too. I, I know that doesn't mean as much as it used to mean, but you were still on an over-the-air channel, primetime, 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. That game, Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreit calling it, and you just missed awful 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 completely whiffed days later the conference has the gall to come out and say nope that was fine we agree with it here's the deal i would not have as big a problem with the pac-12's officiating if we and all the other schools in this conference were getting what we were promised out of this television deal. Or what our athletic directors thought they would be getting out of this television deal. But which, with each and every passing day, it continues to look worse and worse and worse. I actually agree with Larry Scott on one point. There is no point in agreeing to anything with DirecTV until the contract is up again. There's no point in it. But beyond that, every, it, just just that though, the inability to work a deal with TV at the beginning of this, one of the largest providers of television in this country, the largest satellite provider, I, I don't know, Comcast, Big or whoever, but whatever. That deal looks worse and worse and worse by the day. Now I'm not saying that it, you know it would, I would be completely over it if that were the case, but I can at least stomach it a little bit more knowing that Washington State was getting a little bit more than the $2 million a year they're currently getting when we thought they were going to be getting a hell of a lot more. They are getting a much bigger increase in revenue in that, but the TV revenue is just down in the toilet. I, I could deal with it a little better. But the conference's leadership on all of this just looks so woefully inept. Woefully inept. 
the shine has come off Larry Scott for me. And I don't know why this was the straw that... Maybe this was just for me the straw that broke the camel's back with everything else that's gone on. But your officiating is such a constantly bad joke. And then for this to happen, for Francis Owusu to not only be hit like that, but to be injured badly by it. We know more and more every day that concussions are no friggin' joke. Every single day we're learning more about that. And every single day the Pac-12 continues to demonstrate that they have no friggin' clue how to call anything. Every time we go to a replay on a play. Well, it should be this, but Pac-12 officials, so you never know. You should never go into a replay like that, not knowing how it's going to come out because you are not sure about the competency of the people making the call. I realize these people have other jobs. I realize there is other there are other things that they do in their life that do not allow them to be experts. You know, that, that, that okay, fine, they should be experts at officiating, but they have other things to do in their life. They have other jobs. Same way NFL officials do. But they work 12 Saturdays a year. The training has got to be better. It's got to be more. I, I don't know what the fix is, maybe. Maybe I just don't know what the fix is. I used to referee soccer, but I, I acknowledge it was 17 and 18 year olds. I, I don't know what the fix is. I don't think the fix is making them full time. I don't know if just throwing more training at it will do it, but something has to be done. Because right now, you're a joke of a conference when it comes to officiating. The TV deal looks more and more awful by the day. What am I supposed to take that's good from the Pac-12 conference's offices right now? Legitimately. What am I supposed to do? Because I, I'm, 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 I'm still. It has been a week and a half since UCLA played Stanford, and still thinking about it just gets my blood boiling. Still thinking about how badly that call was missed, and then backed up by the Pac-12. There is nothing wrong with coming out and saying, "Look, our officials got it wrong." I don't agree with coming out and saying that, and then suspending the kid who did it afterwards, regardless of how. Uh, belliger- or not belligerent, but you know, uh, intentional. I thought that was because I know that opens up a bad can of worms. The same way you don't go back to that Oklahoma State Central Michigan game and award Oklahoma State the win just because the call was wrong. You don't do that. That opens up a really big can of worms you don't want to get into. I don't agree with if the Pac-12 conference had said, "Look, it was a targeting call. They missed it really badly, and it shouldn't have been an ejection, so we're suspending the kid." I don't agree with that. But you can at least come out later and say, you know what? Yeah, our officials missed it. That was absolutely targeting. And we're going to do more to make sure they are continued to be trained well and, you know, whatever. And okay, fine. People don't buy that. But it, it sounds a hell of a lot better than, nope, they were right. Because they weren't. They were so incredibly wrong. And it's not the first time this has happened. That that calls by Pac-12 officials have been so Blatantly bad, it has become a national friggin' joke. I, 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 no WSU game was irreparably harmed by the call of an official last year. But we have seen a game affected by it this year in Oklahoma State and Central Michigan. And quite frankly, the Pac 12 is lucky 
at least to my memory, that that no referee's decision has so grossly affected the outcome of the game that it's a national running joke. But it's only a matter of time, it seems like. It's not going to be that targeting penalty that didn't get called against Owusu, but it's going to be something else. Because if you can't make that call, if you can't make a call that's that obvious, what else are you going to miss? Dunderhead of the Week and Ask Michael Anything coming up next on the Coop Center Hour. Dunderhead of the Week time. Again, our thanks to Jacob Braeburn for joining us here on our latest edition of the Coop Center Hour. Um, after the after the Cougar game on Saturday, we were back in the Tri-Cities uh, that night and stayed the next morning to watch a football game. Uh, the Seahawks game against the Jets. Uh, went to a bar for the second half after going to the Dupas Boomers in Richland, which, by the way, has the exact same problems as the one in Pullman. Uh, really slow service, but pretty decent food. Um, we were kind of weirdly, like, ushered out of there. Like, our checks got dropped in front of us. We paid, and then they dropped him off halfway through halftime. And went, well, have a good day. Oh, okay, I was going to buy beer, but okay, we'll leave. Uh, went to a bar down the street, uh, and um, a group of us watching the game, a uh, number of TVs around, and one of those long tables. So we were facing in different directions, we you know, TVs in front of and behind you so everybody can see. And there were three of us. Sitting on one side of the table, looking at one TV up on the wall. And these Bronco fans came in. Their game was starting in about 45 minutes. And they asked the waitress to change a TV for them. That's fine. Perfectly reasonable. She decides to change the one the three of us were looking at. And when my one friend, admittedly a little aggressive. Not like aggressively, but with a hyped up tone a little bit. Oh, we're watching that. We're watching that. She flipped out like absolutely lost her mind don't you yell at me about this i'm just doing what they told me to do don't you treat me that way and the look on my friend's face of a i am very sorry and b i didn't know i was yelling and she stomped off like very angrily I, I don't know. Maybe just look at see if someone's looking at that TV before you go to change it. Like, you know, the, the team that most of the people in this bar want to watch and are rooting for. Maybe see if you can find a TV that nobody's really looking at. Or suggest to them, hey, guys, there's another table over here. It's not like it's a restaurant where, you know, you got to sit at the table you're seated at. There's another table right over here with a TV I can easily change for you. I, I admit that my friend, he was a little hyped up because it was in the middle of the, like, the beginning of the fourth quarter. But 
don't turn around and, and get after us for... There are three of us looking at this TV and you're about to change it. Why would you do that? Why? Bad idea. Ask Michael anything time. Ask Michael anything. Selfishly, my very favorite segment every week. At iCoog Jordan, I've been hurt in the past. Is it safe to get my hopes up again about WSU football? No. Don't, don't ever do that. No matter how good they are, I'm I am getting my hopes up enough. That is a bad idea. You are you are going to be hurt again. Never love anyone. Never love anyone. That's what I'm saying. At Mr. Tommy G Man, is ice cream is an ice cream sandwich a sandwich? I mean, it does say that right in there, right? So I guess, yeah, technically. I don't know if I count like the cookie or whatever you would consider like the ice cream goes in between. I don't know if I consider that bread, but whatever. At Sean Coog 86, who's more awful, Alex Rodriguez or the power couple of Jeremy Stevens and Hope Solo? I actually don't have a big problem with Alex Rodriguez now. Now, I don't really have a big problem with him. He's been fairly contrite in recent years, I think, maybe a little bit. I haven't really been paying attention, but I'm, I'll go with Jeremy and Hope. They, they just fit each other so well. Perfectly together. At Ty Martin 3. Ty Martin, any Cougs that don't wear number 9 get drafted this year? Riley Sorensen's probably got a pretty good shot, I think, maybe, to get drafted. Uh, Shalom Luwani probably, if he keeps playing this way this year. Uh, Luke Falk, if he really continues to improve... Uh, might leave for the draft. I don't know if he will, though. Kind of depends on that. Uh, and I think... Who else am I forgetting? Eh, that's probably about, I think that's probably about it uh, in terms of having a shot this year, anyway. At Zane underscore RM, our own Zane Murphy. What kind of food or dish do you want or do you wish that Martin Stadium concessions offered? I would say... And this is oddly specific, but it's just because I have such an unnatural love for it. A Doyer dog. It's 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 the Hispanic version of a Dodger dog with nacho cheese and jalapenos and salsa dumped all over it, and it's wonderful and it's abomination to my gut, and it kills me inside every time I have it, and I need like ninety thousand tons each time I eat it, but it is so worth all the pain I put myself through to have it. It's awful if it's cold though. I got a cold one once at a Dodger game, and that that ruined my week. At Adam N. Davis. Is an hour layover in Reykjavik enough time for a connecting flight? I do say anything. I say to ask me anything on this show, and that is anything. And in fact, very weirdly, this is something I do know about. Not because I've ever been to Keflavik, which is the airport outside of Reykjavik in Iceland. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's because my my dad has flown to Europe for work so many times on Iceland Air. It's actually a one-terminal airport with only like... 15 gates, I think, or something like that. And they're pretty much all exclusively operated by Iceland Air. So you literally get off the plane and you can walk to another gate. And it's just a, it's just a hopping point for Iceland Air to come from America to Europe. They just all stop at Keflavik. That is where they stop and go to. So actually, is an hour at Keflavik in Reykjavik enough time to change planes? Yes, it is. I would never say that about any other international airport. And in fact, if you're flying internationally, I would always advise you to change planes domestically if possible. But yes, that is enough time at Reykjavik to change planes. We do everything here on the Gook Center Hour. 
Washington State 35, Stanford 31. I've talked myself into it. That means they'll surely lose. Sorry in advance. We'll see you next week on the Kook Center Hour.